so good to see your faces in here, and it was good to see you guys outside. I wish I could peer into your computer screens. You're joining us online right this second. And here's what I really love about this, just to be honest with you. Here we are in uh, multiple places all at once um, right here. I mean, this is live wherever we are. Now, we'll, we'll restream this so if you're at 1045 or 5 watching this or later during the week. Still really glad to be able to participate with you, but you know, there's this passage that Jesus makes this declaration, particularly for the sake of unity, right? He says that wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst, or there I am with you. Meaning when we somehow gather together for the sake of unity as a body, Jesus is there with us. And this is what's so profound in 2020 is we can be gathered right here in the sanctuary. We can be gathered right here in the parking lot. We can be gathered in our computer screens, whatever that is. And here we can find that Jesus is with us. And so, um, if you believe that, right, last week's kind of big idea was, hey, we got to start really taking Jesus more serious. Like his, his life, his death, his resurrection has real implications for us, not just in whether or not we go to heaven, but what that means for us now and the here and now, right this second. There's, Jesus is available to us. And so for those of you who believe that, we double down on that belief. Now, if you don't believe that, really, really glad you're here with us. Definitely think it's worth your time to kind of pay attention to. And here's going to be the big idea I want you to know right up front. And then I'm going to take kind of a, a long way around the barn and uh, talk about something and then get back to the scriptures. But here's kind of the big idea. Ready? This is always, and that word's significant. Pay attention to those words. You don't use them in marriage uh, arguments. You don't ever use words like always and never. They're just really dangerous, right? But always, Jesus is always, meaning every single time, always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. And what he has prepared for us is really, really good. Jesus is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. Always. Meaning all this stuff going on in our life right now, Jesus is preparing us for what he has prepared for us. And what he has prepared for us is really, really, really good. Right? And so we'll get back to that in just a second. But let me just give you an example. Another reason why I'm really glad that um, we're, we get to do this live together. Um, up until two weeks ago, kind of the, the way by which we did this was um, on Friday mornings— I would come in, and I would stand up in front of a screen, and boy, you can ask Christian or Ben, the guys who uh, kind of helped record all that. It was all sorts of awkward, trying to do the welcome and the benediction and talking to a room, and typically the first few minutes were just all sorts of uncomfortable. We'd do like 12, 15 takes, and I'm kidding, to talk to, to you guys in a recorded message, right? So on Friday, we'd record it, and then Saturday night and Sunday, we'd, you know, make sure that all the video, all the audio, all the music, everything was ready to go, and we kind of package it, and give it to you and so you can hear so you can understand all, all those kind of things but one of the things that we ran into there is just dealing with real life in real time right uh well a, a long time ago you know back in may and june uh we filmed the message and then the middle of that from that friday or thursday when it was filmed to the sunday when we had church there was n national uproar as it related to george floyd right and we kind of didn't really even get a chance to address it because it was already pre-recorded and this week, if, if we would have just done the recording, uh, we would record on Friday morning, and then Ruth Bader Ginsburg would have died, right? She died, and uh, we just would have just moved right on past. And I do think it makes sense for a second, guys, uh, to pause and talk about this. So not part of the message, but uh, I think, uh, let me help you kind of see a framework on this. And uh, see this as kind of a commercial for what's going to happen in October. So in October and the first week of November, we'll do a five, six-week series called Jesus for President, right? Uh, for the real leader of the free world, right? We're talking about the free world. We're talking about Jesus as the one who is the one who establishes the kingdom, invites us into it. And what we find ourselves in in the middle of, you know, 
political ideologies. It's just this battle that happens. This one seems to be pretty significant, but you'll hear it and have heard it if you've been around some years that this is the most important election of our lifetime, and perhaps that's the case. Um, when we keep using those words year after year, it seems a little bit diluted, but there are some things we're just going to have to work through, and I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg is a, um, a real good talking point for this. Obviously, more than that, significant life, significant legacy, all those kind of things, and yet we, we kind of should pause for a second and figure out how we view this in our, in our worldview, right? Um, and it seems really black and white to us and when we think about this even on Facebook and, you know, Twitter and just kind of the statements, but it's, it's a lot more nuanced than I think we would give uh, credit for just the complications in our world. And what, I, what I've seen and watch even on Facebook is uh, there's some pretty polarized opinions on this right now in our world. Like, just to be candid, many of you are really glad she died. Like, maybe you wouldn't say it out loud, but inwardly you're like celebrating her death because perhaps that means there's a, a different Supreme Court justice that will make it to, you know, that, those nine for a long time in, in our country. And uh, perhaps that'll happen even before the election and you have some opinions on that. And you have every right to have your own opinions on that. And many of you are, are, are actually glad that she's dead which is interesting to think about being glad that someone's dead, right? This isn't a shot at you, and I don't think, I don't even want to go, hey, you're, shame on you. Just inside, there are some people, many of us, who are celebrating what could be happening in this, and then others are just devastated, right? Right? Uh, and just devastated by this death of this person who, you know, was a, a Jewish American and a female on the, in the highest court of the land, right? Probably in the highest court in the, in the world, and she's now gone, right? And so, um, I'm really indebted to Tim Keller and some of his thoughts about this. And we'll, so I'm going to give you a preview of what kind of the sermon will be starting in October. But it, it is kind of complicated. Let me, let me show you why you feel those things. Maybe this will help. I hope it helps. And then we'll get into the message. Um, many of you are um, hopeful about the future as a result of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death, right? And the reason for you probably is has something to do with this. Abortion, right? So um, you are— uh, hopeful that one day babies in the womb will be seen as fully human, right? Not that they are fully human. We can argue that since God the womb as being fully human, that they already are fully human, not just a clump of cells, and yet we live in a world that doesn't define it as such, and rightfully so. Many of you have a righteous indignation about this. Now, hear me all the way through before you go, yep, there it is. They're going to land on the right side. I promise you I'm going to probably bother all of you and upset everybody and kind of live in this messy middle of all this. So the, the interesting thing is, the reason we have these kind of views on abortion, let me use this term to emphasize, right? The reason we do is actually something that happened 2,000 years ago, right? So 2,000 years ago, the, the early church, the one established by Jesus, was known for some unique things. And one of them was their stance on life and its value. Particularly, uh, children were offered as sacrifices to appease um, false gods. Now, that's still kind of what happens. Our false gods are security and comfort. And so, through 2,000 years ago, the church became known as a place that really deeply cared about children. Both babies in the womb, outside the womb, they were unapologetically pro-life completely, and so the church became kind of established itself as that. So 2,000 years later, we're still going, yep, that really matters. And um, because of Ruth Bader's Ginsburg, uh, Ginsburg's views on Roe versus Wade, all those things, again, stay with me, um, you, you might be hopeful that perhaps a different kind of judge will come in and make some different declarations. Now, 
just so you know, and I'm not a prophet in this, but I do think eventually this will get resolved, not because of political ideologies, but because of science. The, the further, the more we can understand about human life and when it starts and watch this stuff kind of play out, it becomes harder and harder. <gasps> I'm sorry about that. It becomes harder and harder to actually define that as a fetus and not a child, right? But anyway, so one side, abortion, you're hopeful that perhaps this gets resolved, that you get one more conservative judge on the panel, and then maybe those things get resolved. Now, on the other side, many of you are very devastated uh, about Ruth, Ginsburg's, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death because of this. Equality. Equality, right? She was a woman on the highest land of the courts, and she valued equality and diversity, right? So she established something in the Supreme Court, like even for my children, what, what my daughters now have someone to go, yep, that person can get all the way there, right? And so there's this value that we go, she was a forerunner and a frontrunner as it relates to women being able to use and exercise their gifts, in the greatest ways possible. And many people are devastated that that symbol and that human being is now dead who represented those things. By the way, we get this understanding from 2,000 years of church history as well, right? It was actually the first century church who defined and declared that, that all people matter. That, in fact, what you can see, even when Jesus dies and then comes back to life, he presents himself first to a woman named Mary. She becomes the first preacher. She goes and she shares the good news of the resurrection. And this is profound and crazy. In fact, there's early uh, historical writings that go, we know that this can't be true because we know that in society, you wouldn't show up and say this message to women. Right? I mean, that's, so what happens in, in, in Christianity established in the first century, it doesn't matter your, you know, your um, gender. It didn't matter your race or ethnicity or nationalism. God kind of levels the playing field. And we see that with Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and we celebrate. Now, on the other side, we are somewhat hopeful, right, because of marriage. Many of you have real opinions about what marriage is, and I have deep rooted convictions about what marriage is established in uh, the first couple of chapters of the Bible where God, you know, established man and woman, takes them as different and uniquely different and brings them together for the sake of unity, right? And what you see happen in the first century is pretty profound, right? That uh, monogamy became the, the way of life for Christians. It wasn't the way of life in the first century, right? And sexuality and sex became put, was put back into the framework of how God designed it in marriage. By the way, I think so much of what we're dealing with on so many levels is be, in our world right now is because sex has been separated from marriage, right? And so in the first century, marriage and sex were all kind of combined together in the Christian church, and so the Christian, and they were actually made fun of for this. The fact that they were committed to their wives, men were, right? And they didn't use their wives as a means to their sexual satisfaction, right? And so the first century, there's kind of this reestablishment of what marriage is supposed to be. And we go, many of us as Christians, we go, yes, marriage really does matter. See, Genesis chapter 2, God, or 1 and 2, God puts together marriage. Then he puts together the family. And all human growth and development was supposed to happen within a marriage and then in a family. And many of us go, we think that's the right way, right? And so now marriage is all sorts of complicated things. And there's all sorts of different words and uses for it. And it just has become so murky and cloudy. And many of you are going, well, perhaps this is a time we redefine this well. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was on the other side, and you go, maybe, and again, first century marriage. Now, the other thing is, many of you are on this side. 
there's a reality that what Ruth Bader Ginsburg stood for and many in kind of a liberal, left-leaning, whatever you want, political ideology, they think about caring for impoverished. They think about caring for the least of these, right? Now, you might have some opinions about how they do it, how much the government should be involved, but in many ways, the approach has been everybody should be cared for. And you go, well, don't give out handouts. And, you know, you got all these different political viewpoints. But at the deepest level, one of the things that happened here is that impoverished people uh, were cared for in the first century. This, again, is a Christian thing, right? You see it in Acts chapter 2 where they held everything in common. They didn't care if they were being taken advantage of. They weren't uh, talking about how they're enabling bad behavior. They made sure everybody's needs were met, right? And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was someone who, from that political left side, right, talked about how we got to do more for caring for people, right? You have opinions right now about even immigration. Well, they're not Americans, so should they receive this kind of care? And again, I'm not trying to call you on any of this stuff. I don't even want you to, I'm going to settle on a talking point there. But you see, this is something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg kind of stood for. So again, from the first century church, that everybody should care for, nobody should be hungry, they should all be loved. No, you, you following this? So, early first century church was very involved in marriage and infant society. They were also very involved in equality and diversity and poverty, right? And so, in our world, this seems really, really red state. This seems really, really blue state, right? And so, we have all these weird things we're trying to wrestle through it, but there's one more that the the first century church was on, uh, very, very committed to, which was just astonishing, and I just want you to see it, because I think, I think, I think, Perhaps this is our talking point. And it was this one. First century church was known for grace and forgiveness. And they weren't retaliatory. They were persecuted, beat up. They were uh, mocked and stripped naked and flogged. And the old time, they still loved their neighbors as themselves. And they were gracious, and they weren't retaliatory, and they weren't trying to use the gotcha statements online. And they offered grace and forgiveness at every corner. In fact, in fact, what made Christianity so unique wasn't their stances on marriage or abortion or their stances on equality and poverty. It was the fact that they were so gracious to one another and to the whole world. Right? And so as we kind of navigate this really complicated and murky time, I just would go, guys, we're going to live in this messy middle, but in the messy middle isn't really, really flying our banners on either side of this. It's leaning in the middle of grace and forgiveness and being a place that extends it to all people at all times and receives it at all times and understands that, yes, these are real issues. And by the way, God never expected the government to fix any of this. In fact, I would argue that the way by which all this gets resolved, the way the marriage gets righted, the way that, uh, you know, sexuality gets resolved, the way that we care for poverty and impoverished and social justice and all those things are not something out there. There's something in here. But where that actually starts is with grace and forgiveness. So as we sort through all this stuff, I just would just challenge you over the next two months, just kind of as a little bit of a, you know, a prodding, to see that it's not so black and white and it's really, really nuanced and the place that defines us the best in the church is actually grace and forgiveness, not our flags in the ground, our lines in the sand, and just being gracious and forgiving the way that Jesus is gracious and forgiving to us. There is a plan, and the plan is God's church. And what I just told you as we started this message was that Jesus is always, always, always preparing us for what God has prepared for us, preparing us for what he has prepared for us, and the things that he has prepared for us are really, really, really good news. So we get to experience that. So I would say, 
I believe 2020, the church is primed to meet the needs and fill the gaps where political ideologies have fallen and failed. So let's sort through that together. And the way that we sort through that is by clinging to and trusting in Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. And that's why I've been studying this gospel, the gospel of Luke, because in the gospel of Luke, Luke actually tells us the reason he writes it is so that we may have certainty about the things we've been taught. And so a real, real quick synopsis. Luke was a doctor, scientist, turned investigative journalist, hired by a guy named Theophilus, a rich government official to really, really investigate if this Jesus was actually true, if there was a different way to live, if we should call him Lord. And Luke says, you know, emphatically, you can have certainty about who Jesus is. And so we've been studying this because we want you to have certainty about this. And so really, if I were to define what Luke was trying to describe and explain in terms of certainty, it was more about this completely, about promise and fulfillment promise and fulfillment. And so the way that we look at that is this way, that the Old Testament, God promised he'd make a way where there is no way. God promised he'd prepare a way, right? God promised that he would bring good news to us, and he would right every wrong. He'd make everything sad, untrue. Those are the promises of the Old Testament. And so basically what Luke is doing in his biography, that's what it is about Jesus' life. He's going, hey, let me remind you, there's a lot of promises, but what you got to see is every single one of those promises are going to be fulfilled, have been fulfilled, and the way that they are fulfilled is in the person and work of Jesus. So Luke is creating this treatise, this document, this dissertation on why you can trust that Jesus is Lord. And so he's just going to walk through it. And so it was so crazy. He, he goes and gathers all sorts of information. He reads all the books. He listens to all the arguments. He, you know, he, he goes and talks to all the eyewitnesses. And then he puts together this chronological, orderly, um, you know, thesis about Jesus's life. And he puts it all together so that we can have certainty in what it is we've been taught. It's so crazy as he writes 1,151 verses and 568 of those are direct words from Jesus's life. So this guy does all the quotations, literally. Almost half of the verses are just Jesus's words. And guess what? We're in week 10, I think, maybe, and we have not even gotten any of Jesus' words yet. And 568 verses are Jesus' words. And so finally, finally today, we're going to get to hear Jesus' words. But what's so interesting about Jesus' words here is he's, the very first words we get from him are as, as a prepubescent boy. This is a 12-year-old boy. Luke gives credence to the fulfillment of this adolescent, this kid who can't shave, might have a little bit of that dirty mustache I'm talking about, Right? That's the very first words we get out of Jesus. And again, he's given us these so that you may have certainty. And at first glance, guys, this story is so far-fetched. It doesn't even make sense to me. And it feels fictional. But you just got to walk through it with me. And what's so interesting is we make movies about fictional things like this. In fact, um, maybe one of your favorite Christmas movies, probably my favorite Christmas movie, is based on the same kind of situation of this kid or adolescent boy who gets lost right? And it has this kind of moment where we see him in all of his lostness by himself because his parents lose him. And when we finally get to this point where Luke is going to share with us about Jesus, he's actually going to show the um, inadequacies of the parents who actually lose him. And at first glance, you go, that is crazy. And yet it's true. And so just to kind of um, take a deep breath between the political stuff to get right into this message, I just want to set up the scene by reminding you of the scene in Home Alone where Kevin gets lost because it has a lot of Uh, implications for how we see Jesus. So here it is, Home Alone, the original one from 1990. What's the matter? Honey? I have a terrible feeling. 
Now what? That we didn't do something. Ah, now you feel that way because we left in such a hurry. We took care of everything. Believe me, we did. Did I turn off the coffee? No. I did. Did you lock up? Yeah. Did you close the garage? That's it. I forgot to close the garage. That's it. No, that's not it. What else could we be forgetting? Kevin! doing all he can. Your phones are still out of order. We'll call as soon as we land, Kate. I'm sure everything's okay. Horrible. Horrible. Just horrible. How could we do this? We forgot him. We didn't forget him. We just miscounted. What kind of mother am I? It makes you feel any better. I forgot my reading classes. So... The mother of God is going to lose her child for like a week's time. I mean, it's pretty, pretty significant. And so let's look at it. Sounds so fictional, but true. So what we're about to see is this Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they are about to head to the temple. We'll talk a lot about that. But before we get there again, let me remind you of the big idea. Jesus is always, always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. And you go, well, how do I get in on that, right? Because it's, and what he has prepared for us is really, really good. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, here's what he says. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, hear this? What God has prepared for those who, here it is, for those who love him. So you want to get in on this, on this preparation of what God has for us? You want to get in on the fulfillment? There's only really one expectation of you. You love God. So, and we're going to go from ethereal kind of lofty idea to how do we actually love God? We're going to sort through this, but the way we're going to sort through it is actually, actually look at what Jesus is doing here. And what he's doing is he is doing a lot of preparation and what we're going to see in this passage, even for Jesus as this, this adolescent point, uh, boy, is what we're going to see throughout the Gospel of Luke, definitely this week, is this term. I just want to remind you, and I'll promise I'll get off the P words this week. We'll get to some other ones. But this term providence, which literally means God sees all things, and he's working all things. And in all things that he sees, and all things that he's working, and he's bending and shaping them concurrently at the same time for, for your and my good and his glory. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. So we're going to see that. And here we find ourselves in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. And finally, 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 10 weeks in, Jesus is going to speak. And let's see what happens. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, right? And so what we're going to see here is that, um, I reminded you last week, that the way that Jews and all religious people kind of operate in their life were kind of three things. 
policies. There are these rules by which they tried to prepare themselves for God's fulfillment. They uh, ate certain things, didn't eat certain things, drank certain things, didn't drink certain things, uh, prayed certain directions, went certain places. So there's a lot of policies that Jews participate in and procedures. So the policies were, policies were the actual things they expected them to do. And the procedures were they actually falling through, right? One example was uh, circumcision. That was a policy. You would circumcise your firstborn so that you'd be reminded of God's faithfulness, but there was actually a procedure, circumcision, right? And so there's all these policies, these procedures, and you can see this in all sorts of religions. There's all these things you're supposed to do, all these checklist items, and Jews are really good at that. Mary and Joseph would have been exceptional on that. So policies, procedures, and then the last one we talked about last week was pilgrimages, there literally was these places they would go because they believed that's how they experienced God in, in the deepest ways. Policies, procedures, and pilgrimages. So what we see right now is that Mary and Joseph are following the policies, procedures, and the pilgrimages, and they're making a journey down to the temple. And now this is significant because they live in Nazareth. This is about 100 miles from where, uh, Mary, uh, where the temple is. So this is a long, long journey, you know, week two weeks, a fortnight, if you would, those kind of things. All those interesting things, policies, procedures, you know, pilgrimages. And so they're heading to the temple, and they're heading to the temple for a very unique policy procedure and pilgrimages, which is the Passover. And you can get back to this in the Old Testament where God says he'd make a way where there is no way. He would free them into, out of slavery, back into the freedom, right? Freedom, leader of the free world. And what they had to do is they had to trust that God was greater than their greatest things. And there was this foreshadowing or band-aid that was put on the Jewish people hundreds and hundreds of years earlier, thousand years earlier. This band-aid that was put on them goes, God is going to free you from slavery. But the way that it happens is there is going to be a price that has to be paid. And that price is going to include shed blood and death. And to remind yourself of what God is going to do every single year, I want you to be reminded that there are, there's a way by which God makes it a, no way. And what he does is he actually, what they had to do is they had to take the firstborn of their lambs and they would uh, care for it for, you know, a year, two years, whatever it is, and keep it blemish-free. And then they would bring it to the temple and they'd make this sacrifice. And they're instructed to declare on that day the reason they were making the sacrifice was because they were reminded of God always preparing people for what he had prepared for him, that God always makes way. It was a reminder of the providence that God was going to do what God was going to do. And so now Mary and Joseph, they're heading to the temple, long pilgrimage, and they're participating in the policies, procedures, right? And there's this Passover kind of moment, and so they go and they, they do the things they're supposed to do. They're very devout, very religious, and at this point, right, the reason being is because they go to the temple because the temple at this point is where they thought God dwelt. In fact, the Old Testament is pretty clear here that we didn't have access to God. And so the reason people would go to these policies, procedures, and pilgrimages into the temple is because that's where they thought they could have the presence of God. Now, they couldn't get all the way to him, but they could get within 30 yards of him. And so they were longing to be made right with God. The same thing that Theophilus is asking Luke, hey, is there a way by which we could be made right with God? And so we find Mary and Joseph, they're heading there. And what we're going to find out, this is 12 years later after you know, the, the moments that we read last week about the purification and the consecration of Jesus as a baby boy. So verse 42, it says this. And when he was 12 years old, and he had that little bitty faint mustache, they went up according to the custom. So here they are 12 years later. So this is not the first round. This is not the second round. This is not the third round, right? This is more than a decade of time where they're doing these policies. 
these procedures and these pilgrimages going, we want to please God. No, literally, they have the Savior with them, and yet they're still following the old patterns, which is what we do. Literally, we have Jesus with us, but we still think that if we don't go to church, God's upset with us. Or if we don't read our Bible in the morning or pray the prayer, then God is not liking us anymore. Somehow, we still think that it's up to us to make God happy with us. And the way that we know that that's the case is think about those times when you really need God to come through in your life. What do you do? You really, really focus on those policies and procedures. You pray more. You fast more. You read your Bible more, right? Because we believe somehow if we do those things, God is happy with us and will give us his presence, right? And hear me. There is nothing you can do. There's no act you can perform to make God love you anymore. Or on the flip side, there's nothing you can do. There's no act you can perform to make God love you any less. But in this moment, 12 years in a row, they're still going to this place because at this point, God has not made himself available to all people. The only way you could get his presence was through the policies, procedures, and pilgrimages, particularly at the temple. Passover had been a significant moment for that. And so that's where we find ourselves. And when the feast was ended, and as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem his parents did not know it, right? They're counting the whole, you know, all the caravan, like, you know, whatever. It's just like the home alone. Literally, you got to see this, guys. Mary and Joseph lose the Messiah. So just, it has nothing to do with the message. But look, if you're a parent right now and you're navigating all the complications of homeschooling or virtual learning or whatever you call it, and you feel like you've just not done a very good job, and that somehow it's all messed up. I just want to, just for a second, could you, could you take a deep breath and just declare, maybe even out loud, maybe tell your spouse, you have not left your child in a foreign city for a week, right? Maybe you lost them in a department store for a couple hours because they hid in the middle of one of those rounders, right? Maybe that, maybe we have that kind of experience. Maybe you didn't know where they were for a few hours. A week? Jesus, the God of the universe, gets lost by probably the, the most important parents in the history of the world, right? God entrusts the human growth and development of the Savior of the world to these two people and lose their son. Can we just pause and go, hey, we're not doing that bad. You're just not doing that bad. It's just really not that bad. Like, and this is where it seems so fictional. You're just not doing that bad, right? Because God is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us, and he wastes nothing in all this. And so they're going to lose their kid and lose their minds. And then Right? So his parents did not know. Uh, verse 44. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. Literally, it's home alone. They're going, did I forget something? I forget something. What is it? <gasps> Jesus! Right? They lose their son. And when they did not find him, uh, <laughs> because he wasn't there, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. So they, could you just imagine, you guys, I, I really don't have enough time to really kind of, you know, shake this one out and unpack it so we can all feel it. Could you just imagine this? Like, like you've had those experiences where you've lost something, not the savior of the world, not your child, but like, could you imagine the pain of going back, going on a day's journey, not having to go back and go, we have no idea where our son is. This is the story of the gospel. So they're a couple days into it and they still have no idea where Jesus is. A couple days into it and they don't know where he is. And now they're going to get back to Jerusalem and it's going to take them a long time to find him. Watch this. Watch what happens next. Uh, they, and when they return, right, they, they search for him, verse 46. After three days, so two days journey, day away, day there. After three days, so five days into this at least, after three days they found him in the temple. So he's in the temple, right? So Mary and Joseph, they go on their search. I think this is a better picture for it right there. There they are. They're searching 
for him trying to find it and they end up in the temple and there's Jesus literally for three days he's been hanging out in the temple I guess he's sleeping there I don't know what he's eating I have no idea right I mean this is this is a strange story they find themselves here Mary and Joseph three days they find him and it says this um the three days they found him in the temple what was he doing sitting among the teachers I want you to pay attention to this again tertiary thought, not in first importance or second importance, but important, right? Sitting among the teachers, listening to them, watch this, and asking questions. This is the guy with all the answers. This is the guy who knows everything. This is the guy who's the savior of the world, and he is preparing them for what he has prepared for them. And in this moment, how is he preparing for them? He's listening, and he's asking questions. You can't miss this, right? I mean, this is, this is the guy who's going to save the whole world. And he doesn't have the bullhorn. He's not screaming and yelling. He's not scoffing. He's not rolling his eyes. He's not saying that they're silly. They're literally talking about all sorts of stuff. All about the policies, pilgrimages, procedures, all these different things. And he's literally going, I'm the fulfillment of all these things. But he doesn't even say those things. He says he's listening and he's asking them questions. Right? This is really, really important as we look at just the complications of our world. I'll tell you guys, in the history of my life, I'm 39 years old, and I've never been able to pull out a whiteboard and explain all the difficult arguments and convince someone to believe what I believe. Right? It's just not how it works. Now, eventually, what happens is someone has come to me and go, hey, could you explain this? Would you help me understand this? Right? But Seth Godin calls it this, permission marketing. It's not spam that we keep throwing at people. It's finally people invite us into the story. Like, so I— um, we we're having these new elders uh, that we'll introduce you to today, and we had kind of a meeting this past week just to talk through it. And what was so amazing over and over again is hearing the story of the last three decades of so many of our elders in our church and how they kind of participated and came to faith and got involved in our church. And for so many of them, it was this intrigue of seeing someone else's life who was different than their life and actually asking the question, what makes you different? here, right? And so Jesus, uniquely different, isn't screaming from a bullhorn. It literally says he's listening to them and asking questions. And that's why I even said for months, hey, could we just listen? Not because there won't be a time to speak. And how do you know when the time is to speak? It's because people actually ask you to speak, right? It's, it's really that clear. You listen, you listen, you understand, you ask the questions. And then when it's time to give your answer, the way you'll know is because someone invites you to share your answer, right? And so Jesus is listening and he's asking questions. And all who heard, watch this, all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers, meaning there was a time that he got to share it. So there was this time. This wasn't like months and years of time. This in this three days, he listens, listens, listens. He gets asked some questions, and he un shares his understanding and his answers. So all of a sudden, he's starting to reveal this fulfillment that's going to happen in him. And watch this. And when his parents saw him, this is so funny. This, you'd think Luke's like, this is a really cool moment. Now watch what happens with Mary and Joseph. It's completely fair. No judgment, right? And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, oh, I love this, right? So again, Jesus still hasn't been quoted yet. So we got Mary a couple different quotes. Luke wants us to hear this quote. Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, and that means listen, listen. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. So literally, Jesus is getting in trouble. Like, he said everything right, and his mom is upset with him, which is fair. This is worse than not cleaning your room, right? This isn't, he didn't empty the dishwasher. He disappeared for three days, right? So this is fair, but she goes, son, 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 like, God entrusted you to us, and we lost you. Why did you do this to us, right? So there is this, this deep kind of concern here, right? Why'd you do this? What happened there? 
for you were in, uh, we were in great distress. Verse 49, and he said to them, these are his first words, guys. First words, the very first ones of Luke's done all the work, the very first words that he felt like it was appropriate for us to pay attention to and listen to. Uh, very first words he quotes. Right? Yeah, I, would, I would pay attention to this, really, really important. And it's going to be kind of like, oh, that's not much. But here's the very first words in the Gospel of Luke, right? This chronological order. We have 12 years of his life, and this is his first words. And here's what he says. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Well, because you're lost, son, right? Because you're lost. Why do I want you to brush your teeth? Because they're dirty. Why do I want you to wash your Because it stinks, son. Why, why do I want you to clean your room? Because it smells like a nasty, toxic waste dump. That's why, right? So there's just like this, this 12-year-old going, why are you looking for me? Right? Like, I so can understand this, like this, this question. Like, why are you looking for me? And then he says this, really, really important. Did you not know that I'm must be in my father's house. Now, this gets really confusing. So, uh, let me help you real quick on the, on the translation. So, he's going to talk about the temple here, the father's house. But the reality is, um, it doesn't say house here. In fact, depending on how you read it, King James, or if you see the little, like, asterisk or the footnote, um, some translate it to affairs or business. There's a reason for this. It's not like the um, translators didn't know what they were doing. Um, it'd be like this. It'd be like me going, um, Okay, all of our children went to the beach, but my son didn't go, right? All the, didn't go, you can assume that when I say we all went to the beach, but my son didn't go, because it already just talked about the beach, it's a fair assumption that we're now talking about the beach, but you could say we all went to the beach, but my son didn't go to the park, right? There is no, there's no noun on the end of this. And so what we see here in this when it goes, it, it actually literally says, I am about my father's apostrophe. Right? So this, so the, what, what's happened here, the translator's going, well, what is it that he's about his father's? Is he about his father's, well, I guess since he's in the temple, the, the most plausible explanation is that he's about his father's house. But others would go, well, it could be things or affairs or business, so we don't know exactly what he's about, but because they just talked about the temple, it makes sense that he'd be uh, referring to God's house. So I'm about my father's exclamation point and then fill in the blank, or apostrophe, then fill in the blank. That's what it says here. So when he goes, I'm a, I'm a, did you not know that I must be in my father's business? What I'd argue here is I think house is correct. I think affairs is correct. But what I really think, what you have to understand that he's really saying here is, is I'm about my father's presence. Do you not understand that I'm always going to be one with the Father, united with the Father, even when he tells us in John chapter 14, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I'd, prepare, I'd tell you that because I'm going to prepare a place for you that where you am, I may be also. Then he gets later in John chapter 14, and he talks about what it means to be in his Father's house. It means to be in his presence, and I and my Father are one. And so what we see here is he's going, do you not, did you not know? Did you not know that everything about my life is going to be all about my father's presence, and this is really, really important. If you're not a Christian, don't understand this. You got to understand, understand the whole thesis of Jesus coming to this planet. And here's what it was: it was that you, so that you and him could be together forever. That's the whole goal of the gospel, the whole goal of the biography, right? Um, so he, Luke says he writes it so that you might have certainty. John in the Gospel of John says he writes these things so that you may believe in him, right? So the whole goal of all these passages, the whole goal of the whole Bible, is for you to know God's heart. And know that he is moving heaven and earth and preparing a way for what he has prepared for you. And what he has prepared for you is for you to be in his presence forever. That's why in Psalm it says, better is one day in his courts than thousands elsewhere. Right? So the whole goal of the Bible, the gospel, of what Jesus does here is so that you and him can be together forever. So when he goes, hey, mom, dad, do you not know that I got to be about my father's house or my father's 
business and my father's business is about being present with him so that all of us could one day be present with him. And so when we think about this, and one of the ways that we talk about it, particularly in fundamental Christian world, is pray the prayer, ask Jesus into your heart so that one day when you die, you'll go to heaven. If you die today, do you know where you'll go? And that, that loses so much of the understanding because what we understand in the scriptures is not that one day you'll get to be in God's presence. It's that right now he's offering that to you because of what Jesus did. And so he goes, I have to be about my father's house. So what he has prepared for us is God's presence forever. Now watch this, verse 50, it's fair. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They're going, what? You had to be in the temple? There's no food in the temple. Like, what? you're there? Like, those, you're with all the rabbi? Like, I don't, like, this didn't understand. They didn't understand this yet. Now, we have more of a history of understanding what Jesus and all the context of what he came to do. The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, the things that were outside of God's presence, and came to bring God's presence back to them, right? And so we understand that, and so they just didn't understand it. Now it says this, and he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Now watch what it says next. It's really important. And his mother treasured up, his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. So uh, that, 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 that statement there, treasured up all these things in her, in her heart, that doesn't mean she like understood it all. It just means she gathered all the information and and applied it to her memory. So the way you can see this is almost like a filing cabinet. She took all, these, took all this experience and kind of put it in the filing cabinet, right? So she's treasuring up all these things in her heart. So she's gathering all this information. She's setting this to her memory. And you go, okay, what is she going to do with it? I'll show you in just a second what she does with it. And so we got all this. So she is treasuring all these things. She's kind of gathering all this information and kind of marking a moment in her timeline in her life where she goes, wow, this was interesting. I don't understand it, but I probably should pay more attention to it. And then it says this. And Jesus, watch this. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature in favor of God and favor of man. So I was just going to show you this moment where um, Kevin McAllister gets reunited with Mom McAllister. And this is this great reunion. I think you can picture it in your head that everything is right. And so you got Mary and uh, Jesus and Joseph and everything just seems right. And they're all there. And so finally there's this reunion. Everything seems right and everything seems good. And you know how the story goes. Uh, the movie it gets better. And, but then what's crazy is there's a sequel. And they lose him again, right? Which we can judge, but at the same time, trust me, I'm going to show you that sequel in just a second because there's a moment that Mary loses her son again. I want to prepare you for that. So we'll look at that in just a second. But we see this happen. But then in verse 25, or 52, I just don't want us to miss this. So Luke gives us the commentary, tells us about what happened, points to the fact that Jesus is in his Father's presence, points to the fact that all this is going to be available to us one day, right? That, that we understand that Mary and Joseph don't get it yet. And then Luke offers some really interesting commentary. So we have birth, then we have 12-year-old Jesus, and then we're going to have, you know, 30-year-old Jesus in the, next, in the next week, right? So when we get back to next week, we'll be in Luke chapter 3, where John the Baptist is preparing the way of the Lord. Really come show up next week. It'll be really worth your time to understand the purpose and mission and vision of our church and how it is applied in the scriptures, right? Um, so we see all that happen, but this week we get him at 12-year-old, just a quick glimpse and so next week we're going to skip ahead another 18 years so last week to this week we skipped ahead you know 11 12 years and then we're going to skip ahead 18 and so we get one little bitty snapshot of all of Jesus's life in fact it's all we get Matthew and Mark and John don't even feel like this is necessary to share anything so Luke gives us all this and this is what he tells us happens for Jesus so we get 18 years of history in one verse and this is what it says and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor of God, and favor of men. So we see something. It says he increased in wisdom. You got that? And in stature. And we're going, well, why does this matter? Couldn't it just say Jesus grew up? 
Right? Remember, so what we're working through is that no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who what? Love him. So we got to go, okay. We understand that God has something prepared for us, but the way that we participate in that is loving him. We go, well, how do we, how do we love him? That's the real question for us. How do we love him? Well, we should follow Jesus' model. So what do we know about Jesus growing up? What do we know about his human growth and development? And for some reason, Luke takes one verse to walk through all this. It says he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature. And you see what it says next? He grew in favor of, watch this, in favor with God and with man. It'd be real easy just to miss this verse and go, well, why does it even say that? Why does it even matter? But Luke wants us to know everything about Jesus' growth, this promise to fulfillment that Jesus is going to fulfill, everything about it is all found in this one verse that says he grew in wisdom and stature, favor of God and favor of man. And you go, well, why in the world does he want us to know that? Why is this what he, he gives us one little verse, or one quotation from Luke, he's uh, from Jesus, and then he, um, all the stuff that captured about 18 years of his life, all of it, he gives us one verse. All the stuff that captured between uh, six weeks old all the way to 30 years old, all of it is just there. And I would just say, if he decides to put it there, we should really pay attention to it. So why does he put it there? No, I would argue it has to do with the fact that Jesus is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. And what it says, in Paul tells us, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, what God has in store prepared for those who love him. So it's interesting you see wisdom, stature, in favor of God, in favor of man. Now, as you think about this, and, uh, later on, you'll see it, uh, it will, will be there next year probably in Luke chapter 10, that Jesus, as this, as this grown man leading in ministry has this brilliant young attorney that comes to him and goes, okay, we understand that it's going to be about uh, your God's presence with us. And so they go, okay, that, you keep explaining and we keep hearing that it's going to be eternal. And so he asks the question, what do we actually have to do to get that? What do we have to do to, to, to cash in on what God has prepared for us? Right? Jesus is always preparing us for what he has prepared for us. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has in store for those who love him. So they, they basically the attorney goes, what do we have to do to cash in on that? How do we get that? You know the passage, Luke chapter 10. And let me just read it to you, verse 25. And it says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, that's Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? How do I get this forever? How do I get God's presence? Now watch what Jesus says. He said to them, Jesus asked the question, What is written in the law? How do you read it? What is written in all the promises? How do you fulfill it? Right? Now watch what he says. He says this, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, Got it? All your heart. All your heart. See that? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, which is somewhere. With all your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and with all your mind. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. So what he says is you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And then it says this. Watch this. And he says, and, 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 and. Your neighbor as yourself. And he said to them, you have answered correctly. Now watch this. Do this and you will live. In other words, okay, how do we get God's presence for all time? And he goes, okay, well, what, is, what does it say in the promises? What does it say in the Old Testament? So he's going to quote Deuteronomy. He says, well, here's what it says. He says, we've got to love the Lord and God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength, and all of our mind. There's some real qualifiers there, right? Now, think about that in light of what Luke just told us about Jesus. What did he tell us? He said, Jesus grew in wisdom. Got it? He grew in wisdom. He grew in his mind, right? And it grew in stature. You got it? 
He grew in his strength and in favor with God, right? With all of his soul. And with favor of man, right? Relationally, with all of his heart. So you want to go, how in the world do we love God? Well, it's pretty simple. So we, have, we don't just say we love God. We actually have to participate in loving God. And how do we participate in loving God? We have to do it with our mind. Meaning we have to do the hard work of actually learning and studying, right? Not, I'm not talking about just the Bible. We have to grow in that, right? That most adults haven't read a book in five years. All our mind. And we have to participate in this in loving with all of our strength, right? There's something about physical exercise and taking care of this temple, not just so that we look good or look good in the mirror or people are impressed with us. There's something about having to love God that way. Loving with all of our soul, meaning there is some kind of fulfillment, this feeling of us that has to happen as a result of the scriptures, reading them and understanding them, and then it says all of our heart. There is something about relational connection one to another, right? Some of your, your cup's even more filled today because you're able to look at people in the face and smile, and see each other here. And so when we see all this, when we understand it all in light of that, and please pay attention. On, uh, come back for the overtime this week where we really talk about all four of those areas. We've got to see that this is what Jesus did. He grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and in favor with man. So we have this understanding. And here's what I'll argue before we move on. I think you're actually doing the second part of this verse. I think all of us are already loving our neighbors as ourselves. Here's just what I believe. I don't think you're loving yourselves very well. I think you're loving your neighbor, says yourself. I think when it says, how do you love, how do you inherit this? Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I would just argue, you are already loving your neighbors as yourself, but you haven't taken care of yourself physically. You haven't taken care of yourself mentally. You haven't taken care of yourself relationally. And you haven't taken care of yourself spiritually. So how in the world could we love our neighbors? You want to see the big bankruptcy in the church and our world right now is we have not owned all four of these areas. And for some reason, Luke seems to make it pretty important. You go, hey, can we see how Jesus grew? You want to know how you actually have to love? We've got to figure out all four of these areas. So tune back in this week as we really, really talk about how we do that in all four of those areas. And I'll even share with you assessment so that you can kind of assess yourself and give yourself a score. Not so you can feel shame to go, well, I can't even love my neighbors as myself because I'm failing in these areas. Again, not for shame, but so we can understand it. Not even because this is how Jesus loves us more. This is how he welcomes us into his presence. He's just given us understanding of what it looks like to grow in him, right? No eye has seen, no ear has heard. No one can imagine what God has prepared for those who love him, love him. Those are the ways. Now, I told you just a second ago that this isn't the only time Mary uh, loses Jesus, right? So real quick, because I love when art imitates reality in the scriptures, I want to remind you the second round of when Luke, uh, when uh, in Home Alone 2 gets lost in New York. I want you to see when Kevin gets lost again. Real quick, here it is.
Kevin's not here. 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 What? She loses him again, and now it's fictional. And so remember, at 12 years old, Mary and Joseph interact with Jesus. They go, hey, you can't do this. This really scared us. Jesus goes, well, I'm in my father's presence. Don't you know that's what I got to do? I got to get back to my father's presence. She goes, they go, we don't understand this, but treasured it in their heart, right? So that's 12. Now you got 18 more years. Jesus grows up, does everything right. And then he uh, jumps into ministry and does a lot of really, really amazing things. Brings dead people to life, blind people to see, lame people walk, just all to kind of declare his goodness so that we can have certainty in him. And then finally we get to the end of his life. In fact, he says that he is the king of the world and the leader of the free world and the savior and the only way by which anyone gets back to the Father, back to his presence, right? No one can get back to the Father except through him. He makes all those declarations to the point where he's literally murdered for this. So he gets murdered. He's on a cross. He dies. And when he dies, it's right in the middle of some complications for the Jews as it relates to policies, procedures, and pilgrimages because it's the Sabbath. So they do a rush job. They take his body and they go and they put him in a tomb. No, they had this plan that they're going to come back and give him the, the right kind of treatment after his death in a few days, right? After the Sabbath. And so this is what plays out on that day. Let me read it to you. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Now remember, Mary has treasured up all these things in her heart. So let's see what happens. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They're going to go give him proper burial. They found the stone, rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord, right? Passes to Kevin, passes to Kevin. Kevin's not here, Kevin's not here. He is not here, right? You got it, you got it? And Lord Jesus, while they were wondering about this, oh goodness, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lighting stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. Why? Because he has Risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man, see these words, must be delivered. Must be delivered over to the hands of sinners. Be crucified and on the third day be raised again. He literally goes, do you not remember this? Jesus actually said this must happen. So important, guys. Because you're going to be a Christian and go, I believe there's a better world than the one we currently live in, right? All the pain, all the sorrow. What, every time you cry, every experience you have, every time you read the news and you have those icky feelings in your stomach that is your body and your soul and your mind telling you that this is not the world you were created for. This is not the world you were created for. When you see all the anger and vitriol and you're just disgusted by it, what's going on there? All that pain, it's just a reminder in your own mind and psyche that this is not the world you were created for. In other words, there's a different world you're created for. But here's the problem. You don't know how to get there. And even if you knew how to get there, you couldn't afford to pay the price to get there. Right? The access to this world that you long for is so beyond our capability of doing all the right stuff to get to it. But remember what Jesus says. What Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard. No one can fathom what God has in store for those who what? Love him. So in this moment, what you see is Jesus is dead and he's coming back to life. And they're going, do you not remember? He literally said this had to happen. In other words, he had to pay the price. Someone had to pay the admission for you to be back in God's presence and you couldn't afford it. You cannot afford it. So Mary's treasuring up all these things and she's putting it all together. And watch what it says in the very next word. And they remembered 
his words. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jesus said he had to be about his father's business. That's right. Jesus said that he's going to be in his father's presence. That's right. He said, even where I'm going to be, you may be also, and you know how to get there. And they go, no, we don't. And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the father but through, by me. And so, literally, this is a reminder that we have misplaced Jesus before. And if you want to find where Jesus is, he's in his father's presence. And he's inviting us there to be in his presence at all times. And the way that you get to his presence, this was so crazy. In John chapter 14, he says, my father's house are many rooms. And so a lot of people talk about heaven in these in these mansions that you're going to get but then he goes on further in john chapter 14 goes i and my father are one and if you're in me you're also in him so he's going no 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 you can actually have his presence now it's not something you get to later yes there'll be an eternity there'll be a kingdom that will reign and rule here on the earth and then for all eternity but you don't have to wait till that day because what jesus does is he invites us into his presence invites us into his presence now so the reality is what we get to live in today is the grace and freedom and truth of knowing we don't have to earn it because jesus actually did it and he paid our admission and the only thing we have to do is step into that and believe that and trust that and then begin to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then, then, and only then, I'd argue, love our neighbors as ourselves. So what's going to happen is I just want you to be able to cling to Jesus. The certainty is not found in any kind of ideology. It's found in Jesus. So the band's going to come up here and they're going to sing us a song. And it might be a new song for you, which I love when it's a new song because you won't get caught up in just singing it. You'll actually be able to get caught up in thinking about who Jesus is. So you imagine that Mary is treasuring all this in her heart and saying, oh, he is this God. He is the Savior. And I just want us, as we prepare ourselves for what God has prepared for us, to see that Jesus is our hope and our guide and our destination. And so would you join me in just a second as we sing? And I'm going to pray over us and invite us to stand. So Jesus, you are our hope. You're our joy. You're our peace. And Jesus, would you please, 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 would you uh, take these words and would you allow them to penetrate every part of our heart, both the passages you just shared with us and the song we're about to sing so that we can trust fully in you, that you have, are preparing us, God, for what you have prepared for us and what you have prepared for us is really, really good. But the only way we get access to it is through you. And so would we see you as our hope and our joy and our peace. Would you hear our worship in these moments as we sing to you? And we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?